In a world without Lore's ban, what vegetable roots will survive? Hey, Sal! Look at this insecticide they're trying to throw at us! Watch me do a somersault and a double backflip right through it! Oh! Yeah, baby! Stuck the landing! Hey, come on! Come on, bud, let's get to work! We got some roots to tunnel in! Stop messing around! Starring Maggot McConaughey and Delia Antiqua. This low-budget feature is now live-streaming in a cabbage, rutabaga, turnip, radish, or other brassica field or onion field near you. Welcome, everybody. It is the 19th of August. This is the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. It's a live weekly roundtable discussion with commercial vegetable growers uh, from the Great Lakes and Midwest region. We broadcast weekly on Wednesdays at 11.30 Central, 12.30 Eastern, from the first week of May to the first week of September. CCA credits are available today. Um, if you are a crop advisor, please enter your name and email in the chat box, and we will email you a QR code. Uh, my name is Ben Whirling. I'm from Michigan State University, and I'll be one of your hosts today. Dennis Van Dyke of the Ontario Ministry of Food and Rural Affairs will be my co-host, and Mike Reinke of MSU is our Zoom engineer. So Dennis, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, we're going to talk about chlorpyrifos today. Uh, we have three guests joining us. We got uh, Brian Nolte, Daniel Gilrain, and Farouk Zeman, uh, all of Cornell University or Cornell, Cornell University Extension. Um, Brian Nolte is a professor of vegetable entomology in Cornell, uh, worked for over two decades in onions. Um, Dan has an ex uh, been an extension entomologist with Cornell Extension out of Long Island for 30 years, uh, has an extensive knowledge of horticulture insect pests, uh, and Farouk Zaman is conducting ongoing trials on cabbage maggot control on Long, Long Island. So uh, we welcome all three of those to our discussion. Uh, we'd like our listeners to ask uh, Brian, Dan, and Zuru uh, questions. You, you can use the question and answer box if you are joining us via Zoom. Uh, you can also, uh, we'll open it up at the end uh, for anybody that's calling in. Uh, you can upvote your favorite questions if you'd like. Uh, we will... Uh, tackle those questions at the back half of the uh, of the show. Well, thank you, Dennis. Um, you meant, as you mentioned, today's episode will be a little bit unique. We are going to focus on a single insecticide and alternatives to it. Um, and as you mentioned, that's chlorpyrifos. Um, growers may recognize it active by its trade name, Lorisban, but there are a lot of different generics out there. Um, for better or for worse, it's been in uh, the regulatory and uh, public spotlight um, here in the U.S. and perhaps elsewhere, um, where there are some groups who are seeking to ban its use. Um, it is one of our oldest active ingredients. It's our organophosphate, but it still remains a really important material for maggot control in onions and brassicas. So we wanted to start out our show um, by asking both Brian and Dan um, about chlorpyrifos. And Brian, let's start with you. Why is chlorpyrifos still an important insecticide um, after all these years um, for our onion growers? Sure, Ben. Uh, thanks again for having me on your show. Uh, I guess to answer your question, uh, there are three reasons that I've come up with. Uh, the first is that it's still effective, or at least perceived effective, on some farms for managing uh, major onion pests such as onion maggot as well as seed corn maggot. So that's number one. 
the second is it's inexpensive. Uh, the, the maximum labeled rate of, say, Lorsban Advanced applied to one acre of onions is about $12. And typically, onion growers are spending about $900 per acre on onion seed, treated onion seed. So adding $12 more is just a drop in the bucket for some insurance. Okay, so that's my third point is insurance. And I'm gonna to have to give you a little bit of history because it's a little complicated. Uh, but beginning in the late 1990s and for about the next 15 years, onion growers were using Trigard or Cyremazine treated onion seed for maggot control. Uh, primarily because it was more effective than Lorsban because growers had been using Lorsban for years and years and years. Populations of onion maggots were developing resistance. So Trigard was a great alternative at that time. But Trigard wasn't perfect for all onion growers. There was a consensus that Trigard did not effectively manage seed corn maggot, which is a close relative of the onion maggot, um, uh, but in a sporadic pest of onion. So what growers did, because chlorpyrifos was highly effective against seed corn maggot, the common way of managing this complex was to use the Trigard treated seed along with the Lorisban drench. Uh -huh. Okay, so so that um, seemed to work very, very well for a long time. And I think uh, despite the fact that there are other options now other than Trigard, another seed treatment package, um, that there's that habit of putting that, that uh, Lorsman in the furrow at planting, even though my research has shown that with the new uh, seed treatment package like Farmore FI500 that it, it's not needed. So the addition of chlorpyrifos when using the Farmore FI500 package is no longer needed. Um, and just uh, for those that may not be familiar with Farmore FI500, it's a seed treatment package marketed by Syngenta. It's got uh -huh. two insecticide active ingredients, spinosad and thymethoxam. Spinosad works really, really well against seed corn maggots and onion maggots. Thymethoxam pretty much only seed corn maggot. So you're kind of getting um, you know, control of seed corn maggots with both chemistries and spinosad is controlling the onion maggots. Um, so really in my research has shown uh, that there, as I mentioned previously, there's just no benefit of adding the, the Lores band uh, with that seed treatment package. Gotcha. So that, that, that's what I've got for onion. Thanks, Brian. Well, it sounds like it's an affordable, it's affordable insurance, um, which which, you know, at the very least, it's affordable. I, I appreciate that perspective. Um, and there's always a cultural or social component to insecticide use. If it's, if you've done it for a while, it, you know, you might continue doing it. Um, Dan, um, do you have anything to add on why chlorpyrifos is still around and important um, after all these years? Yeah, well, I, I would echo much of what Brian said. Um, and chlorpyrifos uh, has been registered since 1965. Uh, so it's, it's, Persistent in that way, uh, but its persistence is another reason I think it has a special value um, because you can put it on on day one and you're still going to get control for probably weeks after that. Uh, not really clear how long that will last, and it may depend a lot of time, uh, soil and weather factors too. Um, uh, another reason is that we really just don't have other. I would say similarly or equally effective insecticide treatments, at least not for all situations. Um, and where I am in Long Island, as I mentioned, talking before the broadcast, where the diamides are not available to us, uh, Veramark and Corrigin uh, would be those. <clears throat> so the, uh, we can't use those. So we are really pretty much left for, as far as insecticides with um, with chlorpyrifos as the more effective option. We have some ones that are more uh, uh, suppressive, I would say. 
So, uh, and that's the issue. And it, it's also around because, not because of the, the minor crops that we've talked about now, but its major use is really on corn. And there is a need for it in uh, tree fruit uh, for some pests uh, that affect trunks and bark of trees. Um, so we, we have, we're beginning to get some alternatives. We do have some alternatives in some cases for these, but um, it's not sticking around because of our little needs, but it's sticking around, I think, largely because of these other major markets. Um, and we're, we're uh, sort of interested in, our, in these other ones as well. Interesting. Well, it sounds like the situation is, is different in, in onions and some of our other crops. Um, it's kind of context specific. Well, we talked a little, Brian, you talked a little bit about maggots. Dennis, do you want to get into, into maggot control? Yeah, I think, you know, historically, those onion and cabbage maggot, that whole um, Delia maggot fly complex has been infamously hard to control. Um, like in Canada, for example, in our money use program, which would be the US IR4, uh, similar, like in onions and brassica crops, cabbage maggot has been the number one insect pest for, you know, three decades, basically. So it's always up there, it always seems to be difficult to control. Um, so let's kind of assume, you know, we don't have chlorpyrifos. I'll start with you, Brian, and onions. What alternatives, you know, in a no chlorpyrifos world would growers have to control it in onions? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, there are three uh, that I'll mention now for direct seeded onions. And um, as I mentioned previously, kind of the new standard, at least in the U.S., is far more FI 500. Um, the F is for fungicide, eyes, insecticide, and there's five products. Uh, spinosad is the, one of the insecticides that's really doing the heavy lifting. At the, it's called Regard is the trade name. Thiamethoxam, which many of you all know is Cruiser, and this is a 70WS formulation. And then it's got three fungicides, exoxy, strobin, fludoxanil, and uh, mefenoxin. And uh, now a lot of growers are also using Evergold Prime uh, for onion smut. But at any rate, so far more FI500 works really, really well. Uh, but we certainly don't want to rely on it exclusively, right? Otherwise, we'll get resistance just like we've got resistance to chlorpyrifos. Um, the other option is TriGuard. Uh, I mentioned that also. It's been around uh, since the late 1990s. And again, growers used it repeatedly, and there were a couple occasions where um, it started to lose its efficacy, uh, perhaps due to, to resistance, although we never proved that. Uh, but it's still around, and now that Farmar has been used a lot, um, I see a lot of utility in growers coming back and using TriGuard, maybe on an every other year basis. Um, as I mentioned, though, that, you know, TriGuard works really well against onion maggot, but there's a perception by a lot of onion growers that it doesn't control seed corn maggot. Uh, from what I understand, Syngenta is going to allow the ability for growers to order seed that's treated with a TriGuard, but also with the Cruiser. Okay, so the Cruiser is really, really good against seed corn maggots. So that should alleviate the worry of needing chlorpyrifos as a drench when using TriGuard. Okay, so that's that's my hope. <laughs> okay, so we've got um, far more FI500, we have TriGuard, and then the third option is Suppresto. Now, Suppresto is a combination of clothianidin and imidacloprid, which are both neonicotinoid insecticides. Um, unfortunately, this seed treatment hasn't worked very well in my research trials over the past decade in New York, uh, yet it seems to be fairly effective in Ontario, Canada. And I don't know, Dennis, if you've had experience with it, but that's my understanding is it's, it does work relatively well. I don't know the difference because 
the, the muck soils that we grow our onions in in New York have to be very similar to those in, in Ontario and Quebec. But at any rate, the bottom line is it, it doesn't work all that well for us. Um, so those are the three alternatives. Um, I haven't identified a successful drench treatment that could replace uh, Lorisban or chlorpyrifos. And I've examined quite a few. Uh, and that includes diazonon. I've also looked at some biologically based pesticides and none of them seem to work very well. All right, so that's half of the answer. That's for direct seeded onions. For transplanted onions, it's uh, it, not quite as promising. Uh, in fact, um, there are, I have not identified any successful um, products that are currently labeled that could be used on transplanted onions to protect them from the seed corn and onion maggot complex. Uh, right now, chlorpyrifos is labeled. Uh, you can put it down as a band over top of the plants after transplanting. And, um, but it just doesn't work when you have a population that's already resistant to Lorsban, right? And I don't think it is really the most effective way of administering a product to control maggots in the first place. So that, that's really not so good. Um, but I'm not gonna finish on a down note. <laughs> the, the good news is that I have, I know what works. And uh, I've actually identified that both Radiant and Entrust, both spinosin insecticides, uh, when uh, added to some water, um, and then the transplanted onions could be dipped in them or uh, in a plug tray type of situation, you can administer the, the mixture on, uh, on top or have it wick from the bottom up into those transplants. And it works very, very well. Um, in my research in a really heavily infested field of onion maggots, I found anywhere from 75 to 80% control using either Entrust or Radiant as a, what I'll call a transplant treatment. As I indicated, uh, this is not legal. Uh, I'm working with Corteva. Actually, I've been working with them for a number of years uh, to see if they can add the use of either Radiant and or um, Entrust as a transplant treatment for maggot control. So that's, that's what I have. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, at least there's uh, seems to be some promise, especially for the transplanted. It sounds like uh, you're really relying on those group fives to sort of uh, do a lot of the bulk with both seeded and transplanted then. Yep, that's exactly those, right. Yeah. Um, I, I was really hopeful that the diamides might work, uh, but I've look, examined diamides in the furrow at planting and uh, they, they have not worked, yeah. at least uh, for cyanotronelloprol and chlorantronelloprol, which I was uh, surprised that it didn't work, but it didn't. Oh, interesting, Brian. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, well, I just uh, yesterday finally finished up writing my turnip trial for cabbage maggot control, and it it's always, we can find differences, but sometimes it's a little depressing. So I'm glad, Dan and Fruk, that you are with us today. Um, so Dan, let's talk about cabbage maggot, and then maybe Fruk can chime in um, afterwards some of the results from his recent trials. What alternatives are out there for brassica growers who have cabbage maggot issues? That's a good question. And we're sort of in the same uh, path that Brian's been on looking for other options. Um, and I didn't mention in my earlier comment that if you're interested in this, the status of uh, chlorpyrifos, at least uh, nationally, there's a very good EPA website that covers that. If you look up uh, chlorpyrifos, uh, um, uh, re-registration and EPA, you'll come up on that page and it gives you sort of a timeline. Um, so our deadline is October uh, 2022 and the uh, EPA review is due and um, 
it's a question whether each state will have it until then. Uh, New York may not, for example. But anyway, as far as the alternatives, there's really only a few that are, let's say, labeled. And the question is, what is actually effective? At least as far as what is labeled. Uh, diazinon is labeled for uh, many brassicas, uh, not all root crops, only rutabaga, as far as I'm aware. Um, so, um, another group would be the spinosins, spinetoram, and spinosad, uh, and trust being the organic version of that, and irradiant being the uh, uh, spinetoram, the um, non-organic uh, compatible product. Um, there is no labeling for cabbage maggot on root brassicas in these materials, but they're labeled for leafy uh, brassicas. Um, you can use it on root ones, but not for cabbage maggot. Um, and these are labeled for suppression. Another uh, group would be the pyrethroids, uh, capture, ruckus, sniper, expedient. These are bifenthrin materials. Um, and they don't include labeling for root brassicas either. Um, uh, Zeta cypermethrin, which is Mustang Max, um, it's, uh, the labeling would be for root and tuber crops, but uh, you can't use the foliage for feed, food or feed uh, on, if you're using it for that on those crops. Um, and there's no labeling for head and stem or leafy brassicas for cabbage maggot with M Mustang Max. Um, uh, Zataractin plus pyrethrins, Azera is the material that's labeled for root and tuber vegetables uh, and brassica leafy crops, including head and stem, um, organic compatible. Um, and then the diamides, uh, Corrigin and Veramark are labeled for suppression in um, uh, Corrigin for head and stem and Veramark for root and head and stem uh, leafy, or excuse me, uh, leafy uh, brassicas. So those are the options we have. As far as what's uh, been effective, um, we've done some work, and I think I'd rather have Farouk talk about some of the work in his trial. We've done seed treatments, uh, flat treatments, and in-field applications, uh, sort of a mixture of all, a lot of different kind of uh, methods. So I don't think we have the final answer on everything yet, but um, we're, we're teasing out some of the answers thanks to some of the work that Farouk is doing. So he might comment on some of the trials that he's done and maybe some of the recent work uh, findings from that. That'd be great, Farouk, and maybe you can talk about transplanted brassicas, because I believe that's what you're working in. What have yes, you that's correct. It's the transplanted uh, brassica, mainly cabbage. Uh, thank you, Dan, for the nice introduction about Long Island. Okay, so back in 2016, we started the first uh, project with the funding from uh, New York Farm Viability Institute to find an alternative to chlorpyrifs. And later in 2018, uh, we uh, received funding from the Northeast SARE to continue this uh, project. So in uh, 2017, we started with a number of insecticide, both organic and conventional insecticide to find whether anything could be used as an alternative to chlorophyll. Also, uh, uh, beside that, we started uh, testing a new uh, exclusion nets. That's the technic net that is primarily used for uh, protecting berry crops from spotted wing drosophila. So we just thought that, okay, how about using that net as an exclusion uh, netting technology? So in uh, 2016, when we started this project, we don't know that which one will work. So that's why we listed the dolphin pyra for uh, antimopathogenic nematode, vadimark, then radiant, uh, and trust. Uh, uh, yes, the, uh, I think those are the insecticide and then the um, uh, exclusion netting. And then the uh, large band has a 75 WDG as a standard and a control. So let's talk about the uh, uh, like the effective treatments that we got uh, in 2017. So capture LFR, dolphin pirate, 
and then the uh, entomomat pathogenic nematode, we found only less than 30% success, varied from 10 to 30% in between 2017 and 18. So we dropped those uh, repeating in 2019 and uh, 2020. So in 2019 and 20, we focused mainly on Verimark and then Entrust, Radiant, Exclusion Netting. And then we, in 2019, we also added a black plastic mulch only, the growing cabbage on black plastic mulch, just to compare with the exclusion netting so that the weed control uh, could be an easy uh, technique for that because when you have exclusion netting, weed is an issue. Then we found some success with the black plastic mulch. Then we repeat that treatment in 2020. So the 2020, there were uh, 19 and 20, there was an additional treatment growing cabbage on black plastic mulch and a treatment with the exclusion netting on the black plastic mulch. So let's talk about the standard large band. Over the last four years, we found between 80 to 92% clean roots. When I say clean, that means there is no damage to uh, and Lorsman was applied only once at post-plant application. That is within five to seven days after transplant. And then the uh, product Verimark, we tested two different uh, like the application method. One with the trade range alone, and then the other one trade range just uh, 24 to 48 hours prior to transplant and an additional application uh, uh, two weeks after uh, transplanting. So we found the fragrance alone with the 13.5 fluid ounce rate. Uh, it's working, but uh, between 50 to 60% clean rule. So then uh, after two years of uh, uh, experimenting those treatment, we dropped it. And then we continued with the uh, other uh, method trade range plus the directed spray at two weeks. Then we see some good success, the um, 70 to 85% clean root. So that gave some additional benefit, uh, like the uh, efficacy. And then the other treatment, Radiant, uh, we uh, use the same uh, application method as uh, Verimark trade range plus directed spray at two weeks. And we have seen, uh, we found good success, like, uh, uh, like uh, uh, 70 to 80, and then a uh, clean route. The exclusion netting, it's, it was uh, like the champion, like almost 98% roots without any damage. Uh, and then the black plastic mulch in 2019, we got very good success, over 85% clean root, no damage. But in 2020, we got a huge infestation. So we were fortunate that over the last four years, we have seen different kinds of uh, 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 like the population or infestation level in our control plot, anywhere from 45% uh, to as high as 95% damage. So the 2020 was the highest damage. And then the damage severity was also high, high, uh, higher. We damage severity means we graded the damage uh, from zero to 10. Zero is no damage, 10 is the complete uh, damage of the roots. So when uh, I say high, uh, low damage, that is less than one. When I see, I see like 
more than five uh, damage, then we see its impacts on the plant growth. So the uh, severe damage in uh, some plants, it was over five, some plants it was one, two or three, but the average in 2020 was like the three point, nearly three point half. So that was pretty good damage. And in 2020, we have seen some of the insecticide, those were showing very good success but the success rate reduced, including large band. In large band, we have seen 67% uh, clean root in 2020 when the da damage in, is very high, uh, over 92% uh, like the infestation, 92% root root damage. So even the large band, that also uh, um, we got reduced efficacy. But the, when it comes to the severity of damage, the severe damage level on large-band treated plot is very low. It's only 0.3 or 0.35 out of 10. That's very low. Very mark. We have we also see reduced success when the population or infestation level was fine. It reduced uh, was very high. It reduced to about 60 percent. So that is also reduced. And then the radiant, the all except the exclusion netting. If your covering is very good. Uh, we got 98% control. The black plastic mulch, which one is doing a good in 2019, but it was not that good in 2020 with the high infestation. Uh, from an 85% control, it reduced to 45%. So I don't know that the reason may be the high population, but the damage severity was also low. Uh, the other 55%, which one have some damage, but compared to the control plot, the damage severity in the uh, under the black plastic mulch was also low. So the added benefit for the uh, some of the treatment is tremendous. In large band treated plot, you will not be getting any benefit of uh, flea beetle, cabbage flea beetle control and then the other worm control. Without controlling those two, even you're, uh, you are controlling very good uh, root damage, but uh, you are not, uh, you'll not be getting any marketable head. But the very much, I never used any uh, control uh, for cabbage flea beetle as well as for worm control but we got completely uh, uh, good quality head. Uh, good quality means when I grade them from one to five, five is the excellent and three uh, below three is not marketable. So the all the heads in the other treatment, including radiant, large band, uh, on plastic mulch, the rating was below three because of the uh, uh, head feeding from the worm as well as growth reduction from the cabbage fluidal. Only the very mark and the exclusion net netting, uh, the head quality was excellent between the four to five. So that is the added benefit uh, for exclusion netting as well as from very mark. I think those are the successful treatment. The other treatment that I mentioned, dolphin pyrite, and so those, I, you will not get anywhere where more than 30% control. Yeah, so. we, and we have the feeling that um, environmental conditions can play a role, plus certainly if we're talking about trade drenches, which may not, may not be necessarily uh, legal or according to label, uh, these are all still experimental in some cases, uh, that the yeah, actual so we're, amount we're put on per- radiant, uh, radiant 
uh, trade runs is not permitted, I think. Right, right. And, and so the, uh, the actual rate or the amount put on can probably make a huge difference in whether you follow with a lot of irrigation. We have had problems with even chlorpyrifos failing because it was over-irrigated on a very sandy soil. So there's a lot of factors that might influence performance that need to be considered, not just whether material is, is or is not effective to begin with. That's correct, Dan. Yeah, thanks for pointing that. Yeah. I'd like to ask a quick follow-up on that uh, exclusion netting. Uh, just logistically, how long are you keeping that exclusion net on after the uh, after the transplant? Is that for yeah, most I, of the season, or how many weeks? Uh, for up to the harvest. Uh, okay. Yeah, because my intention was to protect them from worm and cabbage flea beetle also. So we just let them cover it until harvest. I think you could use that exclusion netting uh, in a more discreet way too. Um, you know, um, if you just need to get cabbage established, they might be a little more tolerant, especially if there's a low population that year, if you were able to determine that. So you could just use it until they get um, pretty well established and remove it. Uh, the netting we have has probably about a four to five year life, depending. Um, if you would be using row cover, that probably would have a sh much shorter life. So these might play into your decisions, also handling and timing and you know, labor and all those other factors can uh, figure in. If you're training a root crop, you might need control over a longer period. You might need, you might have to have it on. Uh, plus, you know, we're looking at cost factors of the netting uh, versus without the netting and what you would be spending on all the other insecticides. Um, and the, and the uh, black plastic was a way to get around the weed issue that you would normally have, as, as Farouk noted. That's great. That's, uh, that's good, good to know. Uh, with that, I think we'll wrap up the official uh, first half hour and, and move into more uh, question and answer format. Um, so thank you, the three of you. Please stay on. Uh, thanks for joining us, Brian, Dan, and Farouk. Well, we appreciate your time. Uh, ben, what's coming up next week? All right, Dennis. Um, on tap for next week, we've got Phytophthora thoughts. Uh, very, as one pathologist told me, Phytophthora is a disease that can make a grown man cry. So um, hopefully we won't be crying next week, but it, it's an important disease for many cucurbit growers. It'll be on at the same place and same time, 1230 Eastern, 1130 Central. Please email any questions you have about Phytophthora along with your phone number to Great Lakes Veg WG. That's Great Lakes V-E-G-W-G at gmail.com. This production was supported by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. Um, as it happens, um, there's actually been a recent movie that came out um, called World Without Lore's Band, and they are the sponsors for today's episode. So Mike, I know that they shared a trailer with us. If, if we could play that, then we will transition to Q&A. For those of you who are online in Zoom, you have three options for participating live. The first way is to put questions in our Q&A box, and we'd ask everyone else to upvote their favorites, and we'll address those first. The chat box should be used for comments so we don't lose track of the questions coming in. And finally, if you feel the need to speak up, we would ask you to raise your hand, and we can unmute you to speak together. We'll handle as many of the online questions um, that we have first um, before moving to the telephones. And if you are dialing in from a telephone, please press star nine to raise your hand and we will unmute you and we will do that at the end of um, the Q&A period. And I know that, um, Dennis, I know that you and I had questions that we'd probably still like um, to get answered and it looks like we are having some um, come on in. So, so this question, um, this question comes from, to us from Canada, and, and this, they're talking about the situation there um, where there are 
being proposed right now are significant phase-outs of chlorpyrifos, um, which is going to be a big challenge for Delia species management, and especially cabbage maggot. So the question was, are there any clear, viable, registrable alternatives for cabbage maggot? That sounds like a good question for Dan and Farouk. Well, I guess I can't speak to the Canadian situation per se, but um, we are collaborating with the IRA4 project also. It's a, it's a U U.S. Um, federal, uh, basically conglomerate uh, uh, effort to uh, find new uses uh, for minor use crops. Things like vegetables and fruit are all considered minor use crops. And we have some materials uh, coming along that are in development that may be promising. I don't know whether those might or might not be eligible for Canadian registration, but that would be something to look into. And uh, maybe Dennis or others in the ministry um, are, are looking at those or, or watching what's happening as far as that's concerned. Uh, Fruk did mention um, uh, the uh, some of the results of his trial, say with Radiant. Uh, I believe that's used in Canada. And there might be ways of using that um, maybe with a label change, uh, some adjustments there to allow Canadian use, at least for suppression, that may be good enough for transplanted brassicas. It may not be good enough for root brassicas, and it's right not, are not labeled for root, but that could be something to look at in the future as well. So I think there's some, if not wide open doors, at least they're open a crack on that. Um, Fruit did mention the row cover, uh, excuse me, the netting, and I mentioned we've used row cover also with, I mean, surprising success in terms of, um, and it's a major headache for handling, at least to some extent on a large scale, certainly, but for smaller scale, it's probably a little more feasible. And if not even at that level for transplant production, so if you're growing transplants in a small plot, this is very reasonable to look at row cover uh, or, or, or the exclusion netting, and it works really, really well. Uh, plus, you're keeping off the flea beetles as well as the caterpillars, so you can save money um, and not having to apply. And it's considered organic, and you get multiple years out of the exclusion netting in particular. So that adds to the economic benefit. And Farouk is looking at the economic aspects of that to see how that all works out. Um, and uh, labor considerations do need to weigh into that. Um, and you have to store it and so forth, too. Yes, then uh, just uh, about the economics, I did a rough estimate, like how much it will cost per acre. So I see, like, the first year cost will be $8,000 per acre, just putting that. So if you divide it into four years, so then I see the cost per head, cabbage head, if you uh, calculate the number of cabbage uh, head per acre, it will increase like over the four years, 15 to 16 cents per head per year. So then you are not, uh, not applying, like uh, almost reducing three to four application for caterpillar and cabbage, uh, Beetle, yeah. mm -hmm. So that will offset some of the cost, but labor is a different issue. Like the, uh, it's not equal for every location. So the labor cost for setting up the nets and also taking them out of the net uh, field, that will also be counted. But also there is a uh, labor involved in spraying four to five times. So that should be. And there's a timing issue too. Let's see, we know when the net would need to have to get on versus you don't have a lot of forgiveness sometimes. Um, you have to respect when the uh, flies are active and get it on before they are. Yeah, as my rough estimate, it will be 10 to 12 cents additional cost per cabbage head if you are talking about uh, two and a half to three pound head size. Um, 
I just wanted to um, ask a quick follow-up, guys. I think, uh, Farouk, you shared a lot of trial data, and um, if you could just give a quick summary of the products, if you just list the products that weren't successful and were, it looked like in the chat, like some folks would appreciate uh, kind of a list of didn't work and seemed to work. Okay, so among the uh, materials that I tested, I would say, Definitely Lordsman, the chloropyrifs, Verimark, uh, SC, and then Radiant and Trust Exclusion Netting. So those are the products you will be getting above uh, anywhere between 70 to 98% almost control. The product that did not work, uh, Tolfin Pirate, Antimopathogenic nematode that I used 3,000 nematode per plant. Also, the capture LFR. Some people say it worked, but uh, uh, but for, in our case, we did not see that much of success. Only it, it was like uh, anywhere between 30 to 35 percent uh, uh, clean roots. So, so those are I'll say because I, I tested several methods also, like only one application versus two application. So. Uh, the product that I said working, it's trade wrench plus a, a transition to root zone two weeks after Got transplant. It. So, Got it. Yeah. So, so that's, it's an important qualification that the uh, success he was having with them, with the products he named were as he had used them. And that's really important because one application in any particular way was not necessarily working in our trials as, as well as the, uh, the application to the tray as followed by a field application to the same plants. So those plants are getting, getting it twice in that way. And that seems to be, have, have been the, uh, uh, part of the reason I think we're getting good results is there's and more to it the, than that. But that's also, it. the following application will have to be targeted to the uh, soil instead of the over the leaves because after two weeks, the leaves actually cover a good portion of the sur soil surface. And you're concentrating you are, it uh, close to the, uh, the base of the plant. Of the, yeah. yeah, that's correct. Dan can explain it. Uh, we say it targeted application, Dan. What do you yep. say? Right, that's correct. Yeah, and you were and you were directing it right to the base of the plants there. So uh, the the more you can concentrate the material there, the better it seems to be. There, there may be a rate effect that's going on uh, with these materials, and that takes care of that. For sure. Uh, there was another comment uh, that I would like to bring up. Uh, looks like Mary Ruth McDonald from the University of Guelph uh, mentioned in their trials in Ontario. Uh, both radiant, so spinadoram, and cyanogenoprol, so Veramark, were very effective as drench on transplant onions. Um, so similar to what you were uh, finding, Brian, with uh, the tray drench with radiant. Um, yeah, exactly. And I just chime in real quick that yeah. I mentioned previously that I I didn't have success with the diamide insecticides for onion maggot control, um, both cyanogenoprol and um, chlorantranilopril, but. Those were on direct seeded onions. I have never looked at either of those diamide products uh, for protecting transplanted onions. Right. Yeah. Uh, there was diazinon I heard mentioned on the brassica side as an option. Um, I was curious, Brian, for you on onions, has there been any experience or have you had any experience with diazinon? So another organophosphate, right? It was there. Yep. Is there yep. any sort of uh, possibility, I guess, if that? product back I, on onions? I absolutely would not. Um, <laughs> I, I did, uh, again, knowing that chlorpyrifos was 
likely to be uh, no longer available for use on onions. I've been looking at alternatives for many years. And given that diazinon is labeled, I figured that would be one of the first ones to try. And uh, it was uh, terrible. I couldn't tell the difference between diazinon treated plots and untreated control. And that was using a kind of a, a broadcast and incorporated method of, of application. Uh, so I will put an asterisk by, by that use. And I've also looked at products like Magistine. Uh, it also did not work. So it doesn't sound like it's going to be uh, an option. Replace organophosphate with another organophosphate then? No, no. And, and there are um, some um, labeled, um, excuse me, some numbered compounds that are in the pipeline. Uh, one is closer to the faucet than the other, but uh, there are some things coming along the way that, that look very, very promising and are working with the IR4, IR4 program to see if we can uh, get the needed information to get labels in the future. I see another question in the uh, chat. Do the diamides work against seed corn maggot? Yep, they do. Um, and, and again, at least now, it, it's easy to make broad statements by saying, yes, it works against this pest. Yes, it works against, it doesn't work against another pest. But there's also other factors that have to be considered. One is crop, the other is soil type. So I have had success with the diamides against seed corn maggot in on mineral soils. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I don't know why, it, but it works pretty well. Um, both, and uh, let's see, uh, those were uh, drenched treatments on snap beans. And I'm trying to remember, I may have even had some seed treatment studies. Yeah, I have uh, with those products as well. So yeah, it, it, you know, it may not be so much a pest type of thing. It could be the soil interacting on how well those particular products work. That's really interesting. We've had Veramark for a number of years in our maggot trials, and it it seems very particular about it. And we know that it needs to get into the plant, unlike some other products, and that means it has to be in solution in the soil. So, um, And I'm not sure if that's um, as much for cabbage maggot, if you need more contact, uh, or it needs to be in the root, uh, in or on the root, uh, not so much in and above the plant. Uh, you know, what kind of exposure is necessary for cabbage maggot with any of the diamets to provide the best and, and what about rate and and we're dealing with very sandy soils so that's a tougher customer in some ways because we can get leaching of even lower span um, whereas in more organic soils or one finer soils you'll get better adsorption and it stays in place I think a little better. Thank you guys. Um, wanted to ask let's see there's a question here um, and I don't know this product Maybe this is another diamide, but um, the gentleman asked, has anyone tested bro Proflanolide. Thank you, guys. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure we're allowed to say, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, Got it. But let's just say that I'm very familiar with that product, and I'll leave it at that. Same here. Th thanks, guys. Um, well, I wanted to ask... Go ahead, guys. Sorry, Ben. I, I wanted to ask a follow-up as well, uh, maybe for onions. Uh, Brian, have you ever looked at row covers on onions? Is that is that feasible as well? It seems to be an option on brassicas for a number of reasons, but should sure. you ever see that working? Um, I've never personally tried it, uh, but there's, uh, yeah, absolutely it would work. Um, pretty much it would work for any 
against uh, any pest, right? Because you're physically excluding it, assuming that it isn't overwintering where you planted your crop, right? Uh, but the, then the question is logistics. You know, how long do you keep it on? You asked that question a little bit earlier, so you have to know when the pest is active. Um, and as we all know that if anybody who's used any type of row cover is weed control. So, you know, that's always gonna be a challenge um, and that type of thing. But yeah, if you, you can certainly keep a row cover on those onions until after that first generation flight is over and um, hopefully uh, take it off and the second generation flies aren't gonna be as attracted to it or, or the larvae won't be able to attack it as easily um, as the first generation uh, will attack this you know, small seedling. Well, well, thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, I, I started my entry, entry into agriculture working on Megan, so this is really interesting for me. I, um, I know there's a lot of folks with a lot more than just intellectual interests. It's, uh, they can be very hard to control and um, do a lot of damage. So we really appreciate you guys taking the time to be with us today to talk through some alternatives. Um, Dennis, is there anything you wanted to add before we wrap up? Nope, I think uh, I'm good to go on this side. I think that was uh, really informative. That was great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Brian, Dan, and Farouk. We really appreciate your time today, and we hope everyone has a good um, good rest of the growing season. Thanks, all. Good luck to all of you, and uh, all stay healthy and be well. Thanks, Ben and Danny, for organizing this webcast. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Stay well. Pleasure. Yep. Our, yep, our pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Bye now.